0: Welcome to the Kenosha City Church podcast. We're in week four of our current series, Habits. Small choices that we make every day add up into something bigger over time. This series will help you get fruitful results through God's Word. Today, we're going to learn how to stay consistent in our faith. Enjoy the message.
1: I tell you, I've learned a lot about habits over my life, and I, I'm not—I'm by no means an expert. But when I when I think of habits, I, I think of something that happened. Uh, a few months back at Revolution. And if Pastor Brandon, when you watch this, um, thank you so much for introducing me to uh, this form of habits. I think of boot camp. Anybody think of boot camp when you think of habits? You get the drill sergeant up there that goes, Attention! Today, I am going to train you to love the Lord your God with all your strength. With all your strength. And I mean, with all your strength. Right? That's what we think of when we think of habits, right? And it's like, it's like so often when we come before the Lord and we're like, okay, we're in a habit series. We're going to learn about, about all the things that we should be doing that we don't, right? That's what that's, If you're like me, that's the first thing that comes to your head. And so you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, like I really don't want to listen to a guy yelling a microphone for 40 minutes telling me all the ways that I've failed, telling me all the ways that I, I haven't lived up to the Lord's expectations, telling me all the ways that I'm falling short of the standard that I've set for myself. And we all have this inner critic in our head that's condescending, that's mean-spirited, that, that's that's ultimately pushing us down and telling us that we can never hope to achieve our habits, that we can never actually Reach the point in our spiritual lives where 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 we're we're coming face to face with the Lord, and we're we're consistent. And so that's why this morning, when we talk about being consistent in habits, I want to start off with the words of Paul from Philippians two. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. That's 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 workspace. That's you have to achieve salvation. No, no, no. He's saying for you to work out. And in order to work out your salvation, in order to, to work out something, he's implying that you already have it. Okay? And this is the spirit of what habitual consistency and devotion to the Lord should be birthed out of. Is that we already have received salvation. And so we're gonna work out of that gift that we've already been given. Okay? So 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 what happens is you have to take And and this is going to be, this is going to be, we're going to be circling around this idea for a while, but you have to take this gift of grace that God offers you and literally work it out into every aspect of your life, okay? You have to work it out into your psychology. You have to work it out into your relationships with others, your sociology. You have to work it out into your worldview. You have to let this, the, the grace from God, the gift of salvation that you've received be applied to every single area of your life. And once you do that, once you've reached that, that level, like, I'm ready to do that, God, then we can start talking about habits. Then we can start talking about how to be consistent. Then we can start having this, this snowball effect where our habits actually become manifest in our life. But until then, your habits are always just going to be these guilt-based, shame-based, uh, less than, falling short of the standard that we're setting for ourselves, and we're never going to hope to succeed. And so this morning, as we, as we dive into these habits, we're, we're going to talk about how to be consistent. We're going to talk about all of these things, but we're going to focus. We're going to focus our talk this morning into the one area of our life that's actually going to move the needle, okay? We're going to focus in the one area of our life that uh, Jana Magruder wrote a book for Lifeway a couple years back, and she studied uh, thousands of college-aged graduates, okay, college graduates who are, you know, young adults, and and they wanted to say, because the big thing is, how do we maintain our faith after we've, you know, graduated at college? How do we keep our faith through college? Because, you know, the stats are showing that people are walking away after college, yada all that stuff. So they studied college grads and said, what, are there any trends here? Is there any data that we can glean from from this group of, of graduates that could help inform the way that we pass the faith on to the next generation? And what they found probably shouldn't alarm you. It probably shouldn't, it's not going to be this aha moment for most of us. What they found, over 90% of the college graduates that they interviewed had a daily habit of reading God's word. And so if we want to talk about habits, if we want to talk about consistency, if we want to talk about anything in your spiritual life that's going to make a difference with how you relate to God, let's start with that. Let's start with, actually coming under the authority of Scripture. Let's start with taking God's word as the standard and letting, and letting everything else flow from there, right? And what, what do we see in today's society? I, I'm watching football. It's almost the Super Bowl. Everyone's excited. Um, I'm an b- avid baseball fan. And I remember vividly, th- this isn't just a one-time instance. This happens over and over again. You hear the sports commentators talking about, oh, this athlete over here. He's so well-grounded, he's, he's so mindful, because he practices meditation before the games. Oh, that's, such, that's so great, I love seeing that. And then and, and you read blogs on, on the parenting websites, they're like, you know what, if you want to start a really great hobby with your kids, why don't you just start teaching them how to meditate? It's a great, it's a great way for your kids to learn and, and, and be more mindful of their surroundings. Or, or you read, you know, hey, you want to make a difference in your life, you want to start a great habit, download this app on, on learning how to meditate in the middle of your day, and you're going to be so great. See, we have this culture that's almost, in a sense, pushing some sort of spiritual meditation as the ultimate habit that we should be pursuing. But we know from, from data and research in, in, in the Bible that ultimately meditation might be beneficial. Meditation could be good, but coming under the authority of Scripture... Allowing the words of God from the Bible to change the way that you see the world around you, that's actually what's going to make a difference in your life. And that's actually how you're going to deeply change. Well, here's the problem, is America has this cultural value of independence, right? We have this, we have this functional definition of freedom. And, and the way that we functionally define it is, it's almost as if it's like a, a freedom from something. It's not just that you're free, it's that you're free from all of these things. And, and how do we define it? We define freedom as being free to do whatever our heart wants to do. Free to, to gratify every single desire that our heart has. And so, today's main point, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to really see the Lord move and start to change you from the very, in, in, the inter, innermost aspects of who you are, then you have to make a choice. And the choice is not really glamorous because the choice that we're faced with and the, choi- and the way that the culture kind of frames the choice for us is you have two choices. You can either choose freedom or you can choose to submit to the Bible. And I'm gonna tell you something. When, when it's put that way, who in their right mind would ever choose submission? I don't wanna submit to anything. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be under the authority of some ancient text. I want to be free, right? And so, so the, the, the odds really aren't stacked in God's favor here. So I'm taking my main point directly from one of uh, author, podcaster, uh, former Navy SEAL. His name is Jocko Willink. I think he's awesome. But the main point this morning is this, is that discipline equals freedom, okay? Discipline equals freedom. And if you want to find, if you want to keep your spiritual habits consistent, you must embrace discipline. And this is not... This is not something that's going to get you popular, all right? You're not about to go and, and, and become an influencer all over social media by, by spouting this out, but it's true. Because the only way to fully embrace spiritual discipline is to submit to God's authority. What we have to understand this morning is that in order to fully submit to God's authority and in turn experience freedom, which I know sounds, we're going to get there, I know it sounds crazy, you actually have to, get over the fact that you can somehow be your own boss, okay? You have to get over the fact that somehow you are in charge. And the way we're going to do this this morning uh, is we're going to turn to Psalm 119 to see how the psalmist uh, portrays this point that that I'm going to try and make with you this morning. So if you turn to Psalm 119, uh, we'll get there in a minute. But the the first point this morning is that you can't be your own boss. What do I mean by that? Is we have to start off... In order to start talking about freedom, we have to start off with our authority problem, okay? We have to start off with this idea that you cannot be your own boss. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with me being unwilling, unable, uh, uh, unwilling to submit to God's authority of, of Scripture? What's wrong with that? Well, there's actually a lot. There's a lot wrong with that. And first of all, thinking that you can be your own boss... It actually ignores the way that your heart actually works. Okay, uh, and, and here's how we're going to sh- we're going to show this, um, because in fact your heart actually has uh, multiple spiritual bosses per se, multiple influences, multiple motivators that ultimately causes it to to function and desire and decide and and make all these habits or whatnot. So when when you say that you can be your own boss, you're in a sense saying and you're, you're turning a blind eye to the way that the human heart actually is in its natural state. Look at verse 37. The psalmist writes in 119.37, Turn my eyes from looking at what's worthless. Give me life in your ways. Now, life in your ways, the psalmist is alluding to the ways of God, the decrees of Scripture, uh, the, the, the rules, uh, the, 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 the best practices that God spells out in the Old Testament, right? And look at, look at what he's saying here. He's saying that in order to find life in God's ways, he actually has to turn his eyes away from the things that he defines as worthless. Now, when you dig into the to the text, this word worthless is the same word referenced in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8, which says, uh, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. So here's the here, here's what he's saying. He's saying there are these things that I define as worthless that the Bible would refer to as idols, that take their place in our heart, that take their place in our life, and that ultimately motivate us to make decisions, to live out a life, to, to, to have habits that we can't even control. And so if we, if we try and convince ourselves that we can be our own boss, if we try to convince ourselves that ultimately um, we're in control, we're, we're missing the mark here, because look what he says. He says, turn my eyes. He doesn't say, I will turn my eyes. No, no, no. He's asking for help. He's asking the Lord, turn my eyes. I can't stop it. I keep looking at these worthless things. I keep running to these idols. I keep having things that are getting in the way from actually giving me life in your ways. And so what is the, excuse me, what does the psalmist say? He says, I need your help. I can't possibly hope. To find life in your ways unless you turn my eyes for me. So what happens? The reason I'm saying you you deceive yourself into thinking that you can be your own boss is is this. If you live for wealth, if you're motivated by your desire to succeed, then your bosses are going to be fame, fortune, and popularity, right? You've got to be wealthy. You've got to be successful. That's your driver behind everything that you do. If you're living to be a good moral person, then the cultural values of the day are going to influence your choices. And you're going to be moved by the winds of culture to do what other people say should be done and not do the things that they say shouldn't be done. If you're a people pleaser, which is, as I said in the last message, which is my problem, then the people you seek to please are ultimately going to be your bosses. So even if you sit here today saying, I can't possibly submit to God's authority, I'm my own boss, you're being ruled and mastered and, and bossed around by everybody else. And the fact is, everybody in this room lives for something. So we have to stop fooling ourselves, stop deluding ourselves to think that we can actually be our own boss and come to the place where, look, at the core of who we are, every single person has something that drives them, right? And, and, and whenever that, that inner boss is threatened, it, right? If it's, if it's morality, if it's you know vanity, whatever it is in your life, if, it, if it gossips, insert, insert subject matter here, right? Whatever it is, when that thing gets threatened, then fear manifests itself, right? Then we come and we're like, oh no, I have to overcompensate for this because this aspect of my identity is getting attacked. I'm feeling the pressure from this side, so, so I, need to, I need to turn, and I need to, uh, I, I, I need to, you know, I need to serve this boss. I need, I, I need to be successful. This is my career here. This is my livelihood, right? Like, and you start getting defensive in that area. And unless you abandon the notion that you can be your own boss and ultimately submit to God, then and only then will you find that you can have a father. And you will find that that, that, that identity, that ultimate driver, is something that can actually fulfill you, is something that can actually forgive you, is something that won't condemn you when those, when those spiritual, or not the spiritual, when, when those, those identity factors, when those mini bosses in your life, when those worthless things are under attack. One of the most infamous relationships in the DC universe is the complex relationship between Harley Quinn and the Joker. Anyone familiar with this? There's, there's been many iterations, some animated, some live action, some extremely creepy, right? And here's the skinny of the story, right? Harley Quinn was a well-intentioned therapist working at Arkham Asylum, and she saw the Joker and she thought she could help him. She honestly thought, like, this guy needs help. I'm a therapist. I can surely do this. And what happened? What she started out with good intentions ultimately led her getting dragged down and and, and ultimately led her be an accomplice and a lover to the most infamous villain in all of Gotham City. And why? What does this reveal to us about our own heart? Listen to the way that Harley Quinn describes her relationship with the Joker throughout the series. Before the Joker, my life was just a big nothing but he came along and suddenly everything made sense. The Joker is the missing piece I've been searching for. With him, I finally feel complete. The Joker has shown me a love I've never known before. He's made me to feel complete in a way I never thought possible. Look, here's what she's saying. Harley Quinn, in in, in these adaptations of the story, is living proof that each and every single one of us has a void, has a gaping hole in our heart that longs to be filled. It's like our hearts are a love tank and we must fill it, right? Every single one of us is missing something. And you can say, okay, sure, well, I, I might have things in my heart that I'm missing out, but I'm not about to go and, and get hooked up with a joker. I'm not, I'm not like that. Well, that's what makes Hollywood, Hollywood, right? Like that's the way it is, is, is the whole purpose of the stir- story is that she got sucked up into a really bad relationship and now we have to see the ramifications of that. But every single person, in this room, every single one of us has something in our heart that's longing to be filled. And every single person's heart is desiring something. And when, and when you try and fill that void with a person, with your career, with, with addictions, with, with comfort, with whatever, fill in the blank, that's when we fall short. And we are a more dysfunctional person because we're running to, as the psalmist says, these worthless things to try and fill ourselves up instead of running to our Heavenly Father, instead of filling our hearts with a love that's everlasting, we're we're settling for something that's temporary, for something that's fleeting, and with something that's never actually going to sustain us. So we need God's help to take our eyes off of the things that distract us, to to turn our eyes back to him and let him be the authority and not ourselves, because there's not a single person in here that can be our own boss because we've all chosen something. So here's the other problem. Here's another problem. We can't be our own boss. And the problem is trying to be your own boss ignores the way that freedom really works. Let's look at verse 45. He writes, I walk freely in an open place because I study your precepts. Now, this metaphor here for open place is actually alluding to this, this choice of freedom before us, right? And it has a great deal uh, to talk about how the nature of freedom actually works, okay? Uh, let me see, show of hands, do we have any Super Mario fans in the house? Anybody that likes Super Mario? Not as many as I thought, okay, we have a few, we have a few. But maybe you've seen videos on YouTube of how Super Mario works. So here, here, here's, here's, here's what, let me get, let me get to this. Imagine that you're playing a Super Mario level, and it's one of those roaming 3D type of, it's not the side scroller, it's, you know, you got a 3D, you can go right, left, up, down, whatever. Okay, and you get to the point in a level where you're faced with this gap. It's a big chasm, okay? And, and, and the only way to cross is this really narrow, skinny little bridge, okay? And so on one side, you've got like an infinite drop. You'll lose your life, you'll have to restart, right? And on the other side, if the game designers are nice to you, maybe you've got a wall you can shimmy across, or maybe not, right? And this is, this is the part of the game that the speedrunners hate. Why? Because you've had this open experience, you've been able to run out wherever you want to go, and you reach this choke point, as they would call it, and now you have to slow down. Now you have to concentrate. Now, the only way for you to continue through the level is to make it across this really skinny one-way bridge, Right? But what happens? As soon as you get past the bridge, as soon as you get into the open expanse of the, of the level, you can go wherever you want. You can go up, you can go down, you can, you can walk, you can run, you can even triple jump, right? You can do whatever you want to make your way through the level. Because now you've got freedom. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. I will walk freely in an open place because I've studied your precepts. See, what the psalmist is implying here is that he's actually found freedom by submitting to God's authority. What he's saying is, finally, I'm free now that I've submitted to God because of your precepts. Or you could think of it like this. I used to be a slave to fear because there were things in my life I thought I couldn't live without. I used to be a slave to resentment because when other people would, would, would threaten my spot in whatever it is, I'd be consumed with anger. I used to be a slave to guilt because I thought I could never live up to others' expectations of myself. I used to be a slave to my image because I was consumed with trying to impress the people around me, right? You're not experiencing freedom. You're, you're, you're putting blinders on. You're only seeing what, what, what you can see right in front of you. You're, you're, you're blinded by all of these other little worthless things in your life that are distracting you from the way that God has already promised and, and, and expressed his love to you, right? The psalmist is saying, instead of being enslaved by those, those things... I found freedom because of your precepts, because look, now nothing masters me. Now now I've decided I can't be my own boss, but I'd rather forego my ways, study God's ways, and those are the things that I can have. Those are the things that allow me to experience freedom. Those are the things that allow me to, to reach the open places. <clears throat> what the psalmist is implying about our habits here is that freedom is not a lack of restrictions. But freedom is actually trying to find the right restrictions to place in our lives. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. There was a story circulating around a couple years back of a little boy in Georgia who had a goldfish. And when his parents like, we're going to get him a pet, this is going to be great. So he gets this goldfish, and uh, they, put the, they put the little aquarium in his room. And he, I can imagine he was spending hours just staring at the fish as it's swimming around. It's like swimming around in there. It's like, oh, look, that's my fish. Let's call him Nemo, you know, whatever. And so he's swimming around, and he's like, all right, quick, okay, great. Now, one night, the parents, I don't know if they heard something. I don't know what led them into the But they, they go into the kid's room, and they notice that something was wrong. They noticed that the, the the there was a chair that had been pushed up against the aquarium, that the lid of the aquarium had been taken off. And there's a picture on the Internet. You can look it up. The kid is actually sitting in the bed, holding his goldfish. Now, what happened? I'm sure the little four-year-old wanted to shower his pet with affection. I'm sure the little four-year-old had seen other people cuddling and snuggling with their pets, and he wanted to do the same thing. And so, surely, if we put ourselves in the goldfish's situation, right, as soon as the kid reached his hand into the tank and pulled the fish out, if we were the goldfish, what are we thinking? Finally, I'm free! I get to be face-to-face with my master, right? I've experienced freedom. I've been confined to this little tiny fishbowl my whole existence. Now I get the whole world. No, that's not what happened. What happened? The fish did not get freedom even though he escaped his tank because the fish's very nature was violated because he wasn't in the environment that allowed him to thrive and survive, okay? And so here's the thing. If we know the proper environment for a fish to survive, then the question that we have to ask ourselves and the question that should motivate our habits and the question that, should, that we should be asking as we try to find the discipline that leads to freedom is what is the right environment for us? What is the environment that God has called humans to thrive in? And it's in that environment, it's in that sort of relationship that our habits can actually give birth to the freedom that I'm talking about this morning. So it doesn't do any good to sit here and say, you need to be consistent in your habits. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray more until you find yourself in that environment. Because the, the dominion of any other idol, any other worthless, worthless things in our life is actually shattered. It's broken. The, 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 the power of those things over our life is actually removed when we find ourselves in an environment where God is on the throne. And, and let, me, let me show you it this way. So many of us, when we, when we try and think about God's authority and, and trying to have a relationship with God, we think, okay, if God if God's up there and he makes a lot of rules. I mean, he makes a lot of rules. Have you read the Old Testament? There are so many rules. And let's just take one, for example. You know, God's not up there saying, all right, I'm, I'm going to smite somebody today. i got a lightning bolt ready to, to, to hurl down uh, when, when, we, when you don't follow this rule. And I'm only giving you this rule because I'm just a taskmaster. I, I'm, I'm mean, I'm nasty, I don't care about you. I just, wanna, I just want rules and rules and rules, right? So he's sitting up there and he says, here we go. Here's the first rule. Forgive other people. Oh, that'll show you. Forgive other people. Even when people wrong you, I want you to forgive them. God's not lording these rules over us. God's not saying... We need to to follow completely, perfectly, because he likes giving us rules. Why does he give us rules? Why is forgiveness so important? Because God created human psychology. God created human sociology. He created the way that our brains work. And he knows that the best way for us to experience relationship with other people is to express forgiveness, is to love other people as Christ loved us, is, is to be marked by something different, then every other motivator in society is to be marked by a love that comes from a father that loves you immensely. And so what happens? Submission doesn't look like I'm just lording rules over you. No, you're submitting to God because you know how much he loves you. You know how much he wants you to thrive. You know how much he cares for you. And that's what should ultimately drive our habits. And only by living within that environment... Can we live as God completely intended? The last point, I know this is a really long intro. I think I'm, I think I'm good at this. Uh, the last point is uh, we can't be our own bosses because it ignores the, it, there's a really weird relationship between love and freedom, okay? And when I, when I was in college, there was this Disney movie that came out that absolutely blew my mind. And in fact, I'd argue that this movie offered the best 10 minutes of cinema that I've ever seen in my whole life, okay? The movie was called Up. I got completely blindsided. I'm like 19 years old, okay? I'm taking my sister to, to Up. You know, it's going to be this cartoony movie. And all we saw for, for the trailers, for everything, was here's this crazy cuckoo bird all painted up in different colors, right? The, the house with the balloons. We thought it was just going to be some corny adventure of an old guy with a kid and a bird, Right? When I sat in that theater and I saw the first 10 minutes of that movie, my mind was completely blown. Because in 10 minutes, we got to see the most incredible depiction of a love relationship ever. We got to see this absolutely captivating love story of of two kids that met and were bonded by this dream of reaching Paradise Falls, right? And and you see this kid who had these heroes who who were brave and adventurous, and then he meets this girl who's quirky and energetic and 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 literally an embodiment of what an adventurer should be. And they they, they fall in love, right? Their, their 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 relationship fosters, and she pushes him to do things he never thought he could, right? And then they get married, and we see in this ten-minute sequence how this relationship that was founded on a destination ultimately got derailed, ultimately wounded up somewhere else because of love. And the best part about this cinematic experience is there were, there were hardly any words. It was just like a silent movie with some music in the background. So what does the first ten minutes of of, uh, of this movie show us? Well, for the guys in the room, you've probably, I- I- if you've been on dates before, right, you, you start off and you're dating, and, and we're all pretty self-centered. It's like, yeah, I got my girlfriend, right? Like, I got my relationship. And so we start off, and we're like, we're, you know... We're pretty self-centered. We have a relationship, and there's this weird, like, like blending of lines of you know where do I stop and my my relationship start. But guys, if we're honest, we can all remember that one turning point in our relationship. We can remember that one point where just a night out with the guys led to an hour-long conversation of where were you? I didn't know you were gone. You didn't tell me you had plans, and now we come to the point where we realize that our relationship, which was to the most part, pretty casual up until this point, actually had some, some significance, actually had some ramifications into our life, right? Because we were now responsible and, and, and to communicate to whoever we were in the relationship with, right? We all remember that moment? Maybe not. Maybe it's just me. But what do we see here? If we're honest with yourself and you ask yourself, like, why? Why do I get to the point in a relationship where I'm dating someone to, you know, to, so that I can have this relationship how do we get there? Well, the question you have to answer, and you might find this answer from someone who's been married a lot longer than yourself, is the question you have to answer is this. When do you actually feel the most free? When do you actually feel like you are who God made you to be? When do you actually feel, I, I hate to use the pop term, but it's your most authentic self, right? When do you feel that way? And the answer if you ask people in this room, people who have been married, is when you're in a deep, loving, committed relationship. A good, reciprocal, healthy, give-and-take relationship. When you're in that relationship, when you're in the type of relationship where you're accepted, regardless of your past, where you're accepted regardless of how many times you've failed, and you're loved and cherished for who you are, that's when you actually feel the most free. So, here's the issue at hand, right? Right? if you only experience true freedom in a loving relationship, then the only way to truly experience freedom is to serve someone else. The only way for you to experience true freedom is to give up your self-centeredness. And if it's true for human relationships, and we can find that illustrated in the best of marriages around us, then how much more could that possibly be true in a relationship with God, our Father, Look, this is is verse 40. How I long for your precepts. Longing is a feeling of like deep desire for something that you don't have. Longing is like wanting something so badly. Like my kids are so excited to go on vacation. I just can't wait to go. I'm longing to go. And he's longing over God's commands, God's words, God's authority, God's rules. Look at verses 47 and 48. I delight in your commands, which I love. I will lift up my hands to your commands. Which I love, lifting up of hands. We see it in worship. It's an act of adoration. It's something that we do. uh, And as as you read, as you read through this this Psalm one nineteen, there's it's a really good section about how much he he just is enamored with God's word. It's almost as if he's panting. He's like thirsting. He's like he can't imagine life without having God's ways. He's not just reading the Bible. He's not just studying it. He's literally pouring his life over it. He can't get enough of it. He's filled with the light. What could be going on here? Well, Tim Keller explained in a sermon that, that interesting love relationship this way. Maybe this, will, maybe this will make sense. Think about what happens when you're falling in love with someone, when, when you meet someone for the first time. What you're doing is every time you meet with this person, every date you go on, every time you're together, you're creating these little mental notes. You're you're, you're plotting data points on the spreadsheet of life, right? You're you're making notes of their joys and their sorrows, their delights and their stresses, the things they love and the things they hate. And and, and you're you're making this, this mental running notebook of all of the things that they love. Why? So that when the time comes for you to express your love to them, you can shower them with delight the whole reason why you're doing this, the whole reason why you're studying this person, excuse me, the whole reason why you're trying to know the very fiber of their being is so that you can give them the perfect gift. Oh, I didn't know you, how did you know I love dark chocolate? It's my favorite. Or, or, I didn't, uh, serving, your act of service is, is, is the way that I receive love best. Thank you so much. Or, the words that you speak over my life are life-giving. Thank you. I know that you love me. You know, you have all the, 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 the ways that you express love. And after collecting all the data, after taking all the notes, after having that running total of who this person is that you're pursuing, what happens? You put it all together, and you form an outline of this person that you're in a relationship with so that you can conform your behavior and show them more love. It's fascinating. It, it, it's, it's, it's it's fascinating. It's a cycle. So here's the point. You've looked at this person's likes and dislikes, you've studied this person, and you're submitting yourself when you choose to be in a loving relationship. You're actually submitting yourself to be under the law of their nature, right? Like, if my wife, if my wife uh, didn't like flowers, I would never buy her flowers. Even though every single Hallmark movie, even though every single card, even though everybody tells me, you gotta buy your wife flowers. You Look, she doesn't like flowers. I'm not gonna buy them for her. Because I've studied my wife, I've I've, I've heard, I've heard not only what my wife says, but I've heard what her friends have told me about her, right? I've heard what rumors of coworkers and other people have said about her because I've got to get all the data, right? And we do it out of delight so that we can go deeper into the relationship with the one that we love. Let's go back to verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at what's worthless. Give me life. And where does he find his life? In your ways, he's 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 defining scripture as life-giving. He's defining God's authority as life-giving. He's defining the way that he sees it. It's not a task. It's not a rule. It's not a burden. It's a joy. It's life-giving. It's something that I can't possibly live without. It's something to never forget. Anybody here have pictures? You got pictures on your desk, in your wallet, maybe on your phone. Maybe you've got them in the, in the, uh, on the walls of your home. Maybe you've got it, uh, I don't know, wherever you hang pictures. There's a couple picture people, photographs of people. Why do we have photographs, in my opinion, the two most beautiful women in the world? Uh, why, do we have, why do we have photographs, right? Is it because we got a killer deal on an awesome frame from Hobby Lobby? And I just need to show everybody, uh, that's mahogany wood, stained it myself. Isn't that an awesome picture frame? Do we display pictures because... We love the glossy paper. I don't even know where to buy the paper. I went to Office Max. They didn't even have it, right? Like, where do you get this stuff? I don't know, but I got it on my desk. Look at that glossy paper. Do we have it on our phones because we just love the way that the pixels light up? Like, oh man, look at all the colors. No. We keep pictures because we love the people that are photographed. We love the depictions that we see. It reminds us of who we actually love. And that's the way that the psalmist sees the scripture. That's the way that he sees God's authority. That's the way that he sees the precepts of God. It's life-giving. It's something that he loves. It's something that he doesn't want to forget. And so the same way that you truly become free by losing your depend, your independence is actually the way that you become who God intended you to be. So look at John fourteen twenty-three. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now what Jesus, don't, don't misrepresent Jesus here. Jesus is not saying, he does not say, if you obey me, then I'll love you. That is not, nope, nope, nope. This is not a works thing. What this is, this is, if if, if it says, if you love me, then you will obey me right? So that I may become more real to you, manifest yourself, make home with you, whatever. It, it, it's so that you can experience this relationship, right? This, 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 this is the, the core problem with understand with our functional understanding of freedom. You can come to the Bible with, with no love, right? You can come to the Bible purely as an academic venture, I want to know what this Christianity thing is about. And you can read it cover to cover, and you can get all the facts. You can look at all the stories and see all the crazy stuff that happened in human history and be like, wow, what a funky book, right? You can come to the Bible and say, you know what? I really want to better my life. I really want to, you know, take steps to be fully actualized. And so I'm going to see what God's word has to say, right? And you can try and pull a couple nuggets out. You can even come to the Bible and think, hey, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible today. Then God will bless me, and then I'll get this, that, and the other thing that I don't have, right? You can come to the Bible without love. But what will happen is every habit, every spiritual discipline, every time you hear about people that are, that are trying to do things of their own strength, it'll come across as cold. It'll come across as unloving, and it'll come across as authoritative. Because without a heart that is submissive, Without a heart that longs for God, without a heart that only desires for him, you will only and can only ever see God as an authority. That's it. You're limited. Here's your your Mario bridge. You've chosen to play the entire game on a really narrow bridge if you fall off, game over. Right? That's the way you see God. And if if that's the way you're going to approach Scripture, I can't tell you to approach it any other way other than to say this. You need to see the gift of grace in your life. You need to see the love of your perfect Heavenly Father. And so, how you might be asking, how does discipline lead to true freedom? How do we learn to continue in our spiritual habits by submitting to God and letting him lead? I'm going to give you four ways, four quick ways of, of how to implement this into life. Okay? Number one, it's our first core value at Kenosha City Church. Um, it, it, it is by far the the, the I, I love it. We are gonna, number one, you're gonna take God at his word. Number two, you're going to allow yourself to be made new. Number three, you're going to live the adventure. And number four, you're going to accept the gift of grace. All right. So submitting to God leads to true freedom. Let's talk about number one here, taking God at his word. If you reject the full authority of the Bible and you don't take God at his word, then you're going to be a slave to the the culture and the world around you, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Surely you can't mean, you're probably thinking, surely you can't mean the whole Bible. I mean, there's crazy stuff in there. You want me to to actually submit to the entirety of the Bible? Yes. Because if you do not submit to God's word, if you do not take it cover to cover, if you do not take it word perfect, if you do not take it as the authority in your life, then what are you going to do? Then you're going to be, you're going to be the judge then you're going to be the one who's ultimately trying to decide right and wrong. You're going to be the umpire. Let me get a little me straight this way. Show of hands in here, if you've ever met a family member who was alive before 1940. Anybody in here? Anybody in here? you got family, friends, relatives before 1940. Okay. Now, they might be parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever. You met somebody. And of the, of the, of the hands in here, I want you to think back, and you, you might have to think... You know, I, I don't know, I, I never really had a ton of people, but you think back on some of your conversations with these people, right? They were probably alive in the 30s, 40s, maybe earlier, whatever. And, and answer this honestly to yourself Were there any of their held beliefs that, sitting here today, are absolutely appalling? Maybe beliefs that they had about other people, other countries, other ways of life, that, that you sit there and you think of the way that they frame the world around them, like, I I can't believe you'd think that. I, I love you, great grandpa Bob, right? But I, I think you're wrong, right? For those of us that raised, raised our hands, see, do you really? And so here's the thing. So we're sitting here today and we're looking at the, the, the views of the people in the past and we're like, yeah, I can't believe they thought, did, believed, acted, said these things, right? So the question that you now have to answer is have we really made it? Are we really a perfect society? Have we really eclipsed the pinnacle of what humanity should be? And if you think that we have, you're wrong. See, what's going to happen 60 years from now? Your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your distant relatives are going to see some of the things that you've said, that some of the things that you hold dear, and they're going to see some of the things that all the intelligent people around us all hold and believe as true, and they're going to think it's ridiculous. But here's the catch. The catch is, we don't even know which one of those things are actually right and wrong. We don't know what future generations are going to think about our deeply held beliefs. But I can tell you this, that when you take the scripture, when you take God at his word, every letter, when you take, when God says something in scripture and you take it as fact, you're not being guided by the waves of culture. You're not being steered by the world around you. You're being steered by God, his unchanging word. You're being directed by him and him alone. And so if you think that you've reached the ultimate generation, if you think that every single one of your beliefs is right, that's why we have to submit to the authority of God's word. That's why we have to come under the authority of scripture. That's why we need God to to show us what true freedom is, to show us the worthless things in our life, to show us where we're erring in our ways so that we can follow his ways, which are timeless which were meant for us to thrive, which were meant for us to experience that freedom that I've been talking about. And if, if you choose, well, I'm just going to go to the Bible, I'm going to pick and choose what I believe, I'm going to pick and choose the things that I think are right and wrong, then what are you left with? You're going to be left with a Bible with a bunch of holes cut out of it because you've removed Scripture, you've removed things, and you've made God not into the God of the universe, but into a God that you've created and you've made God into a functional yes-man who just agrees with everything that you've already, you already hold. And, and he's just, he's just going to be a God that you created. He's going to be a God that you controlled all to serve the, the, the flawed perception that we can actually be our own authorities. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to serve a one-dimensional yes-man formed in my image. I want to serve the maker and creator of the universe who designed the environment that's best for human life to thrive. Number two, allow yourself to be made new. How are you made new? How are you renewed? How can the habit, the discipline, how can can you find freedom in God's ways? Well, that happens when someone who's willing to come under God's authority accepts the discipline and finds true freedom in his ways. And this is more than just studying the Bible. This is more than just trying to understand all the old illustrations and all the old stories and all the old facts, right? Right? This is what it is. It's allowing the Bible to study you. It's reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible, and allowing the Bible to interpret and read our lives, right? It's taking the text of God's word and allowing the Spirit to interpret the deepest desires of our hearts. Let's look at verse 34. He says, Help me understand your instruction, and I will obey it and follow it with all of my heart. If you really want to pursue a relationship with God, if you really want to be made new by the precepts, decrees, and authority of the Lord, then, and only then, you need to ask yourself questions as you come to the text. So open your notes, pull out your phone app, uh, grab grab something, write these down, because this is the way that you're made new by God's word. Okay, This is what your time should look like. This is what, when, when you spend time reading the scripture, this is what it should be, right? Look at a verse, look at a portion of scripture, look at whatever. And as you're reading it, ask yourself these questions. Why is God telling me this today? Why am I reading this? Why is God telling me this today? What, of all the scriptures I'm reading right now, why is, why is God confronting me with this? Or to put it another way, if I apply this scripture, how will it make, how will it make me different in my relationships at home, work, etc.? Right? If I, if I apply this scripture to my life, how will it change me? Or last how can I apply this scripture to this situation right now? Whatever, fill in the blank, your situations. But what are we doing? This is not just reading the scripture and interpreting it. This is allowing scripture to interpret the deepest desires of our hearts, to speak into our lives, and to allow a living and active God who's alive today to thrive in our life to fuel and to sustain the the, the the highs and lows of life that all of us experience. And there will be times where you come to Scripture and you're feeling really good about yourself. You're feeling like you just killed it. And God will remind you, you're not really that great. Check your pride at the door, buddy, right? Like, pride comes before the fall. There will be times where you just feel worthless and you feel like you can't do anything right. And, and, you, co- and you come to the Scripture and, and he says, You are my child with whom I'm well pleased. Pick yourself up. You don't need to be so hard on yourself. I believe in you. Keep running the race with perseverance. And that's why this morning, I can't even talk to you about maintaining your habits. I can't talk to you about spiritual discipline until you come to the spot where, yes, you admit you're not your own boss. Yes, you admit that you're willing to take God at his word. And you admit that you're willing To be made new. And then, and only then, when you get to that point, where you've accepted all three, can you live the adventure that God has called you to live. If you're still with me here this morning, we're going to go to verse 50 and 51. The psalmist writes, This is the comfort in my affliction. Your promise has given me life. The arrogant constantly ridicule me, but I do not turn away from your instruction. See, the word adventure here is so appropriate. Because it highlights the journey that God has called each and every one of us to be on. It highlights the very nature of what the Christian life should be. It highlights the way that his word and our calling is is supposed to be an adventure. It's not supposed to be mundane. It's not supposed to be, I got to go to church today. I got to read my Bible today. No, it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be exciting. And heroes are the people whose stories are written about. They're the people who accept a calling bigger than themselves and do things that as we're reading it, we realize we can't, we can't even do. And they're the people that never give up. They're the people that persevere to the end because they're driven. They're driven by the overwhelming understanding of what their calling truly is. And there's no better example of an adventure than the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Am I right? Gandalf the fa- wise fatherly figure sees a future free from Sauron's raid and big bad guy, right? He sees a future where there's where there people can actually farm their fields without threat, without the threat of being cut down by whatever goblins or whatever's out there, right? He sees a future free from the influences of all these dark all the darkness. What's the problem? All the biggest heroes, all the strongest warriors, all of the people can't actually actualize his vision. Why? Because the only way to defeat the ultimate bad guy in the story is to take the ring of power and throw it into a volcano and destroy it with the very magma that was used to create it. Okay? That's the whole that's the whole shebang. But what does Gandalf find? He finds a weak, frail, adventurous young goblin who's not the bravest warrior, who's not the strongest, who's not even the smartest. Sharpest tool in the shed, but who's willing to know where the destination is, and to take the adventure? Who's willing to give up the comfort and the security that's found in his little shire, and to venture to the ends of the, or- the, ends of the world, and ultimately come to the doorstep of the very enemy himself, and confront it, and 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 make that choice, and stand for that adventure, and 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 to, and to take. Take the ring over the finish line into the volcano for the greater good, and that's why Frodo is the ultimate hero, and that's why uh, it was his destination that ultimately led him to the end of the story. I, I, I know it's an oversimplification, but that's the adventure that God's calling us to. That God's calling us on. And the best part about the Lord of the Rings is Frodo had help the whole way. He, wouldn't, he didn't have to do this by himself. He had a whole group backing him every step of the way. Now. When you start to take God at his word, when you start to allow yourself to be made new, when you start to, to see God's authority uh, uh, the way that the psalmist is writing it, what happens? You're going to remember your calling. You're going to remember what, who God's called you to be when you're brought to HR for your faith, when people are slandering you, when people are, are, are telling lies and, and, and you're just consumed with your situation. Because you're not going to get misdirected by all of these side things that ultimately don't matter. Because you're going to keep your eyes on the end of the race. You're going to keep your eyes on the mission that God's called you to. And you're going to be driven because you want to. Frodo wanted to help Gandalf. He was excited that he got picked. He's like, yes, I want to do this. And that's the same way that our hearts have to be towards the adventure that God's called us on. See, instead of sitting home, Frodo could have sat back and enjoyed the comforts of the Shire for a little while. Until the ring race came and probably cut him up, took the ring, and the bad guys would have won, right? But when you realize that God's calling you to be generous, even when you don't know where the money is going to come from, right? That is the adventure. That is the life. That's the way that this, this whole thing plays out. See, Jim Elliott was a Christian missionary. Jim Elliott was called to bring the gospel to a place in the world that it had never been before. Jim Elliott was called to Ecuador. And he had been serving for years, and, and him and three other friends landed at this little tribe, and they were killed for their faith by the very people that they were trying to shed the gospel for. But that was the adventure that God had called him to. And here are his uh, famous last words. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. And long story short, Jim lived the adventure. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this story today, you're probably thinking, well, how did that work out for him, right? It doesn't seem like a very happy ending. He gets killed and leaves wife and daughter behind. Like, what what good is that? Really? Do you think think Jim Elliott regrets being a martyr for his faith? let's Let's look at some of the ramifications of his decisions. His wife, Elizabeth, remained in Ecuador, preaching the gospel to the very people that killed Jim. They made profound impact um, uh, amongst the tribes in Ecuador and even so much so as bringing the very person that killed Jim Elliott to Christ. Okay, Time Magazine gets a hold of this story of what's happening and actually publishes it. And uh, many many Christian missionaries were talking about that story fueling what we call the, the missionary movement, fueling thousands of other Christians to do the very same thing that Jim Elliott was doing. And... and it, this is even this is even cooler to me. Is there's actually magazines that were writing about the profound impact that Christianity was having on on, on the ways that the tribes were relating to each other. Do you think Jim Elliott's up there regretting his decision? Do you think that he regretted living the adventure that God called him called him to? Absolutely not. He had profound impact. He reached thousands and thousands of lives, and when he's standing up there in heaven worshiping the Lord, there's going to be thousands of other people whose entire eternal destiny was changed because of his faithfulness. Sounds like a pretty great adventure to me. It sounds like the kind of adventure that God is calling each and every one of us here this morning to, because that's the way that the Christian life should be. And the only way you're going to see that adventure is if you accept the gift of grace. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. uh, The author of Hebrews writes, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what what does the author of Hebrews say? He doesn't say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is our example that we are to emulate. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. Because if that's what this passage was talking about, every single one of us would walk out of this room today discouraged. Because every single one of us knows that in the race of life, what happens? We're going to trip and fall. We're going to have a false start. If it's a hurdle race, we're going to try to jump over the hurdles and knock the hurdles down. People are going to be laughing at us. Why? Because we are not Jesus. We are not capable of living a perfect life as he did. We are not capable of running a race with perseverance. That's why Jesus had to be, as the text says, pioneer. That's why he had to run the race first. That's why he had to proverbially stomp out the race for us to follow behind. That's why he had to set the direction. That's why he has to be the course. And that's why he is our only hope. Because he knew that running the race, that only he could run, that living the life that only he could live would ultimately bring him to the cross, that only he could die on, in our place for our sins once and for all, giving us the freedom to come before the Lord. Scars and all, regardless of what's in our past, to come before our Heavenly Father, joyfully submitting to his authority because we've seen the gift that he's given us and he's just asking us, come to me. Accept the gift of Jesus. There were Hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. We couldn't possibly hope to to hit every single one of them perfectly our whole life. Jesus did. The standard to be with God is perfection. And when Jesus took our death on the cross for every single one of our sins, when Jesus willingly gave up his life so that we could live with God forever, we were given the gift of grace. We were set free. We were free from running the rat race Free from turning our eyes to worthless things. Free from, free from bowing our hearts to things that will ultimately not satisfy. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He wasn't obedient as an example, He was obedient out of love. He ran that race so we wouldn't have to. You picture a race. You're standing up on the starting line. He comes to the race. He rips the little beanie thing with your number on it, puts it on himself, and starts going. He wanted to get to the finish line for us so that we wouldn't have to run it ourselves. There's no way that you can take God at his word. There's no way that you can be made new. There's no way that you can submit to his authority unless you accept the gift of grace that Jesus is offering you. Because if you don't, if you don't submit to God, and if you're unwilling to do this, then you're going to be a slave. You're going to be trapped by the very things that, are worth, that the psalmist calls worthless, you're going to be trapped by those very deepest motivations of our heart that blind us from the love of the Father. But if you do, if you do, you're going to know that you're already accepted, that you can't be condemned, you can't mess up, because Christ's victory has already been attributed to you. You won the race because he ran it for you. So how can I sit here and tell you to be consistent in your habits? How can I sit here and tell you that you should be doing this, that, and the other thing unless you've accepted the love and value and gift of grace from God who so freely is giving it to you? And until you take that gift of grace and put it front and center and say, this defines my life, nothing else matters. Don't even bother with habits. Don't even bother trying to read your Bible. Don't even bother trying to worship. Because if it's not done out of a spirit of love, you're going to miss the main point. Your habits won't be a love letter back to your one true love. Your habits won't be a gift of grace. Your habits won't drive you to the place where you can't be without them. Your habits need to align with the only way that you see your Heavenly Father who loves you so much. And I can't think of a better way to describe this love than in the lyrics to the, to the song Known and Loved by City of Light. I'm just going to read this because I ain't going to sing it. But they're put in the song, You have seen my weakest moments, and you love me even then. I need no greater confirmation that God, your goodness, has no end. This truth I treasure, my peace forever, is being known and loved by him. That's what drives us to be consistent. That is what drives us to come to God's word and to receive truth from our Father who cares for us so much we don't have to be weighed down by all these things and all these lies that we tell ourselves. I'm just going to pray. Father, your love is so incredible. We can't possibly fathom how much you have affirmed us. How much you have just given us a, a, a free access to you. God, you're so good and we're so unworthy of that gift of grace. We're so unworthy of the love that your son gave to us. We're so unworthy of his life. But God, that is what the psalmist is highlighting for us this morning. And if anyone in this room is struggling to see you, if anyone in this room is struggling to come to your word because they can't even focus on who you are because they're so blinded by their performance, God, I pray that you would free them from that today. That you would free them from that, the, the, the fact that they have to achieve something because you've already ran the race. God, I pray that every single person in this room would know the gift of grace that you're freely expressing to us through your son, Jesus. That our lives would be changed. That we wouldn't feel condemned anymore. We would just be captured by your love. That we wouldn't be going to the scriptures out of duty. That we wouldn't be going to these spiritual habits out of just discipline and grit alone. But we would be drawn to you because you first loved us. And if there's anyone in this room that hasn't accepted that gift of grace, if you don't know Jesus personally, I'm begging you this morning—you are missing the greatest adventure, the greatest gift. You're missing the mark. So, if there's anybody here that would like to place their faith, their hope, their eternal security in Jesus and Jesus alone, I invite you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Thank you. Thank those online—you can comment in the chat and we'll connect with you later. But. Thank you. For those that are raising their hand, I'm just going to lead you in a quick prayer just to model what's going on in your life back to the Lord. You can say, Jesus, thank you for living the life that I couldn't live. Thank you for dying the death that I deserve so that I might be free, that I might be free to love the Lord who made me, that I might be free of the bondage of all the things that pretend that are good for me but ultimately aren't. And I can be free to come face to face with my Maker the one who knows my innermost being and the one who loves me more than anything else in this world. Jesus, I accept your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection as payment for my sins so that I might live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: As a church, it is our honor to be a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out more about what your next steps can be at Kenosha City Church,